This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is a specialty fragrance house currently celebrating its 20th year. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab specializes in formulating body and household blends with a dark, romantic, gothic tone, and over the years they've collaborated with the likes of so many of my personal heroes, including Neil Gaiman, Guillermo del Toro, and the Jim Henson Company. They continually return to inspirations drawn from witchcraft, paganism, mythology, and they have a sister store called Twilight Alchemy Lab that creates oils blended and consecrated specifically for ritual use. The lab has just released their annual Halloween perfume collection, which is a limited edition series that includes a line inspired by depictions of witches and sorcery in classical art Ooh, right up my alley. I've been a fan for years, and you will be too. So check them out at their official online shop at blackphoenixalchemylab.com. Grow Wellness is so honored to sponsor this episode of Witch Wave. Grow Wellness is a center and sanctuary of the healing arts located in Richfield, Connecticut. We offer a variety of alternative medicine modalities inspired to manifest magic, health, and abundance into the lives of all beings. Our light shines across the globe with incredible services such as Reiki energy healing, hypnosis, medium sessions, readings, and so much more. These private sessions are accessible online wherever you are with our seasoned practitioners and gurus. You can experience the magic of our yoga and meditation sanctuary classes through Zoom and in our on-demand library. Our shop is stocked with ancient herbal remedies like CBD salves, herbal teas, crystals, yoga props, and so much more. Our shop ships internationally. We are always here and within your reach. Grow Wellness, where Eastern and Western medicine meet with grace to create your warm and magical sanctuary to explore. Visit growwellnesstherapy.com to explore offerings that fit your style and needs. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Snowy Owl Tea. And I am so lucky that it is because they spoil me with their scrumptious tea blends and always send me what's new. Snowy Owl Tea's latest concoctions include Midnight Moon, which is an Earl Grey tea blend with lavender and vanilla, and my new addiction called Ginger Snapped, which is a ginger tea with oats and vanilla, and it is just outrageously delicious. Snowy Owl Teas are unique, handcrafted tea blends made with real fruit, fresh ground whole spices, full leaf teas, and blossoms. They are created with your health and comfort in mind using 100% biodegradable tea bags and some of the most beautiful packaging I've ever seen. Best of all, Witch Wave listeners get 20% off orders using code WITCH. So go ahead and order some super delicious tea today from www.snowyowltea.com. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and 
reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave. So this episode is a really special one for me because some of you may have noticed that for the past few years, I've been on this journey to really try and knit back together my Jewish upbringing and ancestry with the intersectional feminist witchcraft and paganism that has called to me and made a home for me since I was a teen witch in suburban New Jersey in the 1990s. And a lot of this ancestral searching was really escalated by the pandemic, because I was here in Brooklyn, not really leaving this apartment, and feeling this immense longing for New York City even though it was just out of reach, just outside my window. I was missing my home. I was missing the place that I was living in. And seeing this majestic behemoth of a city that I love so much grind to a halt and become empty and quiet and full of grief and death was just heartbreaking. But one of the things that gave me comfort was thinking about how my grandparents and great-grandparents all also lived in this city and survived. Several of my great-grandparents escaped persecution, and we're talking centuries of persecution, not just Nazism. A lot of my relatives came here before World War II to seek a better life. And yes, tragically, many of them did have family members who stayed in Europe and who eventually would lose their lives in the Holocaust. So during the height of fear that I was feeling, especially during the beginning months of this pandemic, I found a lot of that support and solace that I needed by looking at my family history, by looking at New York City history, and turning towards my own genealogy. And I was reminded through that work that this city has survived many, many other tragedies, some of which I also have lived through, though most of which happened before I was even born. And I was also reminded that my ancestors survived many, many tragedies, and that by some miracle, some magic, some great, deep, graceful luck, I am here. And you listening to this, you are here too. You are here because you have survived, no matter what your relationship may be to your family or your ancestry, those problematic, complicated people, 
did give you the gift of life. Your messy, problematic, complicated, wondrous, marvelous life. And so for me, an important part of honoring my ancestors and discovering more about my personal story is deepening my connection to my family's culture, to Jewish culture, and to New York City culture. But let me be clear, this does not mean in my case that I'm suddenly going to synagogue or keeping kosher or anything like that. I'm doing this Pammy G style. I'm doing it through learning more about the magic and mythology of my people, much of which was not taught to me in Hebrew school. And to be clear, I went to a pretty progressive synagogue when I was a young person, but I was never taught about the mythology and magic of Judaism in the day-to-day sense. I was taught that you had to wait to study Kabbalah until you turned 40. And it was not emphasized to me that there were techniques of divination, techniques of communicating with ancestors, other than, you know, saying Kaddish to honor the dead on their death anniversaries. There was not much evidence of there being Jewish magical practice other than some stories that were told to me from the Torah. And in fact, as we know, in the Torah, it expressly says that, you know, speaking with ghosts or practicing some kind of witchcraft or necromancy or you know, certain forms of divinatory practices and so on are not supposed to be done, right? And so trying to find the folk magic practices of Judaism is a lot of detective work. And I owe so much to those who have come before me doing this detective work through their writing and research and art making and their own Jewish magical practices. And what I keep being drawn to is not so much the religious liturgy of Judaism, even though I do want to give a big shout out to those who are feminizing or queering the prayers and rituals of the Jewish religion. I'm so inspired by that work. But in my case, I've become quite infatuated with the folk magic and folklore of my ancestors, as well as with the contemporary artists and writers and Jewishes today who are reframing and reclaiming this magic through their wonderful and often weird, wild work. And so for me, learning more about, say, the healing herbs that my ancestors used the amulets they created, the soul candles they made to honor their dead, and the Jewish ghosts and werewolves and unicorns and demons that populate our storytelling tradition, all of this has quite frankly rocked my world and made me see that a lot of the magic that I was searching for as a young person outside of my family's heritage was actually there all along. I just wasn't told about it. I wasn't exposed to it or taught it. 
But I also want to make the point that this doesn't mean that I'm giving up my relationship to Artemis, say, who I've been a devotee of since I was a teenager, even though I'm not Greek, okay? Or giving up other practices that I've developed for myself that are deeply personal and are outside the scope of Judaism. And this is just one witch's opinion, but I want to be clear that I'm not suggesting some form of cultural absolutism where everyone should only stick to the spiritual traditions of their ancestry. I do think it's possible to connect with other influences in respectful, genuine, non-appropriative ways. And we can certainly debate about that, and I've had many guests on here who have different perspectives. And just a heads up that I will be talking more about this in my Sawin workshop that I'll be teaching online later this month, so be sure to check that out. But yeah, I'm just telling you where I'm at right now in my path, because my path is still ongoing. And I'm talking about my ancestral seeking more publicly lately because ancestor magic is something I get asked about constantly. And because I promise you that there is magic to be found in every culture, including your own, if you go back far enough and if you are willing to do some digging and be patient with the process. In my case, one of the people who has helped keep my excitement about Jewitchery ignited is today's guest, Ezra Rose, who is an illustrator and writer and who creates some of the coolest, smartest, most magical work I've ever encountered. I've learned so much from Ezra, and I can't wait for you to hear our conversation all about it. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches. Rena writes, I was born in India and adopted at two. I grew up in a Caucasian Catholic household, and I've been dabbling in witchcraft since middle school. But I've been a baby witch for quite some time. I often feel lost in the craft and life as a whole, but I feel most fulfilled when practicing and being in touch with my culture. I'm interested in ancestor practices, but I don't know who my family was, and I can't seem to find info on Indian witchcraft. Any advice? I can't find where I belong, and I've often felt othered in my life, and I don't want that feeling to invade my practice. Hi, Rena. So yes, some variation of this question has been addressed several times on the show now, including on the last episode, the Jinx Monsoon episode, where during the Witchwire segment, there was someone who came from four different backgrounds asking about how to integrate them all, which I realize is not the exact challenge that you're having, but I still think it might be helpful for you to listen to that as well if you haven't already. But I do want to make a couple of other points and suggestions here. First of all, 
You do not need to know who your small P people were in order to connect with your capital P people. In other words, I totally understand and sympathize with the fact that you don't know much about your biological family, and I can only imagine how that at times might contribute to this feeling of non-belonging that I know many adopted folks sometimes wrestle with. So first of all, I just want to encourage you to consider finding a community of other adoptees who can relate to these feelings in general and who can potentially offer emotional support if that's something that would be helpful for you. But when it comes to spiritual belonging, Knowing that your roots are in India is plenty of information for you to go on. And I just want to remind you that the words witch or witchcraft are English words that historically were applied in negative ways to the practices of usually non-Christian people. And it's only been within the last century or so, really, that those words have taken on a more positive or aspirational connotation through the modern witchcraft movement. So remember, many magical people throughout history, in fact, most of them, would not have referred to themselves as witches or using the local language or local term for the word witch. They might have used a variation of the word healer or priest or priestess or seer, oracle. You get the idea. So I would think about what kind of magic you are hoping to connect with and then Googling or otherwise researching those more specific terms. So I've talked before about how the terms folk magic or folklore tend to bring up more regionally or culturally specific results. And so I can imagine that researching Indian folk magic or maybe Hindu folk magic or Vedic folk magic might be a place to start. But you can also be specific about what kind of practices you're hoping to learn more about. Are you hoping to connect more with the moon or a greater spirit of some kind? Are you hoping to connect with or honor the deceased? Do you want to do divination? Are you looking into herbal or energetic healing? Are you wanting to find out more about protective magic or love magic? So as you can see, if you use more specific search terms like those, that will most likely be helpful for you as well. You know, adding then the words Indian or Vedic or Tantra or Hindu, you know, all of the words that are associated with your capital P people. And as I said at the top of the show, reconnecting to our ancestors is an ongoing process. It's very personal. It requires patience and I believe a willingness to be receptive and open to surprise. And I also believe that our ancestors want us to remember them and that they like it when we honor their practices. And so in my experience, when you start searching, they then start to help in whatever ways they can because they sense that we are seeking them and they try to meet us halfway as best as they can through 
messages and signs and other forms of magical guidance. I hope that this is useful and I wish you so much luck and so much magic on your path. Now on to my guest. Ezra Rose is an illustrator, zinester, and multidisciplinary creator living on a small farm with queer chosen family. Their work explores monsters, magic, queer and trans identity, and Jewish culture, and has been published in tabletop games, comics, literary anthologies, and more. In addition to the beautiful and radical drawings that Ezra creates, they are also an extremely brilliant and insightful writer and researcher, and their mystical poetry and zines about Jewish folklore figures have truly blown my mind and broken open my heart. Ezra's most recent zine is called FYMA, Fuck Your Magic Anti-Semitism, A Lesser Key to the Appropriation of Jewish Magic and Mysticism, and it is a truly illuminating and educational treatise on the ways in which Jewish culture has been stolen from and exoticized by the Western esotericism movement over centuries, and it is truly a must-read for Jewish people and non-Jewish people alike. Ezra has that rare combination of humor and heart and style, that reverent irreverence that I find so irresistible, and I just adore their mind and the gorgeous, glorious things that they create. Ezra joined me from their home in Western Massachusetts via Zoom. Ezra Rose, welcome to The Witch Wave. Thank you so much for having me. I am over the moon that you are here. As I told you off mic, I'm like just the biggest Ezra Rose fangirl. So <laughs> this is such a thrill for me. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so just completely honored to be here and still kind of stunned. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you a little bit, Ezra, about how I came to your work. Through, I think it was Dory Midnight, who's also a former Witch Wave guest. And I know that Dory is kind of part of this renaissance that's happening, at least that I'm witnessing, where it seems like really rad artists and poets and herbalists and witches and so on are kind of like resurrecting Jewish magic and Jewish folklore. And that's just my sweet spot, especially these days. So big thanks to Dory Midnight for connecting me with your work. Dory's amazing. Oh, Dory is amazing. So much love to Dory. But I'd love to hear, Ezra, how you have come to start incorporating your work with all of this Jewish magic and mythology. Yeah, I think like you said, it's a really exciting time to be making that kind of work because there is a strong movement towards investigating that history and also kind of creating new traditions and creating new ritual and new ideas based on what we kind of find inspiring in a lot of lesser known Jewish pasts. And I feel like I really started to dig around and find that in maybe the mid 20 teens, mm -hmm. which, you know, was a time when I was pretty isolated as a Jewish person 
I didn't have a Jewish community in person really after my mitzvah ceremony and I say mitzvah as a gender neutral. <laughs> I love that. It's like B apostrophe. B apostrophe mm-hmm. mitzvah. And I've also heard B'nai mitzvah, which is just the plural. And I like that too. But I had my mitzvah ceremony and then I really just fucked completely off from Judaism <laughs> <laughs> for about 10 years, honestly. Mm-hmm. And that had a lot to do with the way Judaism was presented to me as a kid and my experience and feeling like an outsider. But it really wasn't until my mid-20s that I started to meet people primarily online, but then in person, which was really exciting, who either hadn't had the same experience. They'd stayed and they've kind of carved out a place for themselves and their interests in Judaism, or they had already kind of discovered the things that I was going to find really interesting. So I started meeting those people and talking to them. And that kind of led me down this incredible rabbit hole of research and just reaching out and reading as much as I possibly could and talking to as many people as I could. Mm. I feel like I've just been kind of on that learning journey ever since. Yeah, it's so addictive, isn't it? Because I think I'm a little behind on the path because I'm learning so much from you. So I can't stop reading and I'm like falling in love. It's just this amazing experience of actually, you know what? I would love it. If you might read the beginning of a zine that you just put out, because I think it actually speaks to what we're both talking about really beautifully. Sure. And this is a zine that you just put out very recently called Fuck Your Magic (laughs) (laughs) Anti-Semitism, A Lesser Key to the Appropriation of Jewish Magic and Mysticism. And we're going to go very deep on this zine in a little while, but I would love for you to just read your opening paragraph, if you would. Absolutely, yeah. This is a story about feeling like you're missing something and leaving home on a journey to find a replacement, only to realize that what you find was taken from your home in the first place, warped and disguised so as to be almost unrecognizable to you. It's a story about learning why no one told you it was ever yours, and also about questioning your own urge to take things from other people's homes. It's about magic, religion, and the blurry line between them. It's about the clearer, bloodier line between cultural exchange and cultural erasure. It spans hundreds and hundreds of years and is still being written today. It's my story, and it might echo or overlap with yours. Ah, so gorgeous. And of course, this is the very beginning of your beautiful treatise on how a lot of different cultures and specifically kind of Western esotericism and Christianity, particularly in the 19th century, even before that in medieval times and so on, how those people kind of took a lot of imagined Jewish practices and then spun it up and kind of almost like sold it back to us in a way. And I can't wait to talk to you about that. But the reason that I wanted you to start with those words is because it feels like it applies to so much of the artwork that you're making and the zines that you're making, too. Do you think that's fair to say? Mm. Yeah, I think I'm finding my way still back to what feels the best for me in terms of art and what feels like it's really coming from me and what excites me. I feel like I've had almost a parallel journey with art to my journey with Judaism. So it's really interesting that you bring that up. Can you talk about that a little more? What? Why do you say they're parallel? Well, I think parallel and different, but I talked about having left Judaism for about 10 years in any religious sense. It was something that 
remained very important to me as an element of my heritage and aspect of culture, but I really felt like I wanted nothing to do with the spiritual aspect of Judaism or spiritual community aspect. And I likewise had a good decade after I graduated from art school. It was very, very difficult for me to make any art, Mm. especially to draw, which had been prior to art school, my main form of creative expression and the thing that I most enjoyed in the world, something that really felt like magic to me. And art school, in many ways, complicated that relationship in a really difficult way that I'm still untangling. It took a long time for me to find what felt like my place and what felt like it was going to work for me and what was going to feel right with art. I'm still finding it in the same way that I'm still finding where I fit within the many Judaisms that exist. Mm, Yeah, it feels like you had this innate connection to your own art and your own spirituality, mysticism, and then institutions came along (laughs) and told you, oh, it's supposed to be like that. And you were like, fuck off, (laughs) right? Yeah, definitely that. Struggling to fit myself into any institutional framework is a pretty lifelong journey, but I bump up against what is required of me in order to fit myself into, say, a capitalist context or a normative gender context or anything that needs me to suppress my own experience in favor of packaging. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, something that's been just really exciting to me is finding not only the people who I want to share Judaism with and who I want to share the kind of outsider, strange, interesting forms of Judaism with, but also people who are really responding to the artwork that I'm putting out and who are interested in collaborating with me and feel like it's kind of a signal sending for me. Absolutely. It's like sending those flares up and finding the other weirdos, right? Exactly. I love that. So let's talk about your art. This is obviously an auditory medium. So I always love the challenge of trying to convey artwork (laughs) in this medium. And certainly I encourage everybody to check out Ezra's work and we'll have all kinds of links we shout out later for that. But can you in your own words describe your style or the kind of imagery that you love to put in your illustrations and your other work? Sure, yeah. What I'm mostly seeing as a through line, I've done a lot of different kinds of work. I can never really stick with one thing. But no matter what I'm doing, I'm obsessive about detail. I like to really dig in, whether it's with a pen or doing some kind of really intense texturing on a sculpture. I like to spend some time on the tiny intricacies of things. Mm. And I'm also... I'm really just in love with the past in a big way, the visual past. I think some of my biggest inspirations for visual style come from things like old woodcuts Mm -hmm. or golden age illustration from the late 19th century, early 20th century. I make sculptures that, despite being made out of very modern materials, are attempting to kind of mimic rough cut stone or something. Mm-hmm. If I could work with stone, I would just work with stone. But <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm trying to approximate it. So I think I'm really interested in agedness in some way. I'm really a goth at heart. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just, I like things that are dark, things that are strange, things that are a little gory, a little weird. I've been drawing monsters my whole life. Mm-hmm. That's my happy place, really. 
Well, it makes me so happy to view. And so many of the monsters that you are now incorporating in your work do come from Jewish folklore, Jewish mythology. And just by way of introduction, one of the pieces that I just think is so smart and so moving is a piece that you have called Fagala. And I wondered if you could kind of describe that image and break down for us the language and the symbolism behind it, because I think it's really clever and really moving. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So Fagala is a drawing of a large figure in the frame, imposing, but also fat, curvy, kind of voluptuous who is wearing maybe a cloak of feathers. It's kind of unclear whether the feathers are attached or not, but also has kind of a feathered ruff and birds' hands and feet. And the figure is nude and seated, but you're not really sure what they're seated on. And they're looking at you in a kind of a haughty way. And their feet are chained and their hands are chained, but they don't seem to be bothered by that. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom, there's kind of calligraphic Yiddish text reading Fagala, which is literally Yiddish for little bird. But culturally, it's a word for a queer man or a queer person. So this figure is referencing Shadim, Jewish demons, Mm -hmm. who are usually depicted as having bird feet. And it's also referencing queerness and transness. It actually came from viewing a retrospective of one of my all-time favorite artists. I went to a gallery show of Leonard Baskin's work, and I was really inspired visually by what was going on there. But also, I was listening to a talk given by Leonard Baskin's son about the work and about how Baskin viewed bodies and how he used bodies in kind of metaphorical ways. That image came a lot out of my brushing up against the fact that Baskin, to me, was creating these incredibly beautiful, imposing, kind of glorious fat figures. Mm. And for him, I think they were symbols of gluttony, of capitalism. He has a gorgeous image called Glutted Death, which is a fat, bald figure with wings kind of shadowed. For me, when I look at just the image, it's just everything I want to be. Mm. (laughs) It's kind of everything I I look at it as a mythologization of my own body Mm. in a way that's totally at odds with what he intended for it. And I love that. I love that I'm having a completely different response to his images than he potentially intended. So Fagala was really me coming home from that exhibit and going, yeah, here's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck right. Mine is looking you directly in the face and inviting you to have an experience. Yes. And it's so gorgeous. And I should just add for people who are listening, at least I was taught the term fagala is it's often derogatory. So I don't know that I would go around just calling people that. Would you agree, Ezra? I just feel like, yeah, it's not like schwitz. It's not a a neutral word. So careful how you're. uh, And it's often reclaimed. It's reclaimed, but it's reclaimed in the same way other slurs are. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Another image of yours that makes me laugh that I just love so fucking much is this illustration you did of these two hands. And I'll let you describe the hands. But it says, Hail Shadim, (laughs) instead of like, Hail Satan. Can you break that one down for us? too? Yeah. So that's an image. I literally just made that to wear on a T-shirt myself. 
I want this on a shirt and I'm going to make it and maybe somebody else will want this on a shirt. But one of the hands, they're kind of old woodcut style hands. They have claws. They're kind of clearly demonic. One of them is making the horns metal symbol and the other one is making half of the priestly blessing from yes. Judaism. Yes. So <laughs> it's, it's just a goth Jew joke, really. Oh. I, I, I cackled. That. I cackled, <laughs> Ezra. And I, I really want that shirt, too, if you ever make more. My goodness. Oh, thank you. And we should say, if people don't know what the priestly blessing hands are, literally, like if you've ever seen Star Trek, that live long and prosper sign that Spock makes, that is literally from the priestly blessing, although it's both hands that Jewish priests use or, you know, Jewish rabbis use. And Leonard Nimoy intentionally took that symbol from his own upbringing, and he just thought it was like a beautiful sign. So you know the symbol that we're talking about. And it's supposed to be the letter Shin, isn't that right? The Hebrew letter Shin? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I love Star Trek also. I'm a big Leonard <laughs> Nimoy fan. <laughs> Who isn't? Right, right. Awesome. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. If you are a witch with discerning tastes— and I know you are, you need to visit Lilith Amberley Village Witch, where you will find a beautifully curated collection of witchy and magical items. All merchandise is carefully selected, not only for its gorgeous aesthetic and quality, but also for who and where it came from. Lilith Amberley Village Witch works with many women-owned businesses and ensures products like White Sage are gathered with ethical and sustainable methods. If you are looking for items like pendulums, jewelry, travel altars, and the like that are handcrafted by local artisans instead of mass-produced, then this is the place to shop. Like a local witch shop, Lilith Amberley also offers tarot readings and serves as a resource hub for witches and aspiring witches alike. Exclusive VIP list members get access to it all, including free ritual and spell guides and special offers like 50% off your first tarot reading. And Witchwave listeners get something extra special, 10% off all your merchandise orders for Ever. All you have to do is go to lilithamberley.com slash witchwave to sign up for free and get all the details, including your 10% off witchwave code. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Now look, I'm an air sign with anxiety, so I confess I'm sometimes stuck in my head and focused on stress and problems more than I'd like. But in addition to witchcraft, I have found therapy to be incredibly supportive because it helps me focus on solutions when I'm faced with a problem rather than just staying stuck in this feedback loop of focusing on what's hard. I've been in therapy myself for years, and talking to a therapist really helps me shift from a mindset of resisting what is into a mode of acceptance and problem solving, which has been such a relief. And that's why I'm so glad that BetterHelp exists. BetterHelp is an online platform for therapy, which means that it's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And that also means that more people can benefit from talking to a therapist. 
Being in therapy myself over the years has helped me manage my anxiety and PTSD because it provides me with an impartial, caring person whose sole job is to offer support with emotional challenges. Therapy has also helped me accomplish my goals, whether big or small. Quitting my corporate day job a few years back and writing my book, Waking the Witch, and starting this very podcast were all really exciting and also extremely nerve-wracking, and I truly don't think that I would be as fully actualized as a person doing what I love now without having had that help. And I want that for everyone. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option because you can do it virtually. To get started and matched with a therapist who you click with, you just need to fill out a brief survey and remember that you can switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave. Be well with BetterHelp. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Ezra Rose. So Ezra, in addition to your beautiful illustrations of all sorts, you also put out zines, and I'm so obsessed with them. We already referenced Fuck Your Magic anti-Semitism. And again, I keep promising we're going to talk about it. I promise. I promise we will. But I want to talk about this series of zines that you did before that about different kinds of Jewish monsters and creatures from folklore. Can you walk us through the subjects of those four zines for us? Yeah, yeah. So these are mini zines. You take one page of printer paper and you fold it in kind of a magic way and it becomes a little tiny book my favorite kind of zine to make because they're so fast and you yes. can trade them. The first one that I did was called Shadim and it was just kind of a primer on Jewish demons because it was, you know, a topic that I'm really interested in. Even when talking to other Jews, folks were going, what? So I wanted to have something that I could just hand and say, yeah, there's all this cool history here. Check it out. I have a pretty extensive that I've collected over the years library of Jewish folklore and magic and mysticism. So I just kind of stack up my books and grab tidbits and put them in zine format and draw little pictures. So I did that for Jewish demons, and then I followed it up with three others. There's one for the golem and one for dibuks, Jewish possessing spirits. And there's another one for angels or malachim. Yes. And I want to break down a little bit each of these creatures. I know we have a limited amount of time, but for me... I was raised Jewish. I mean, we were reform Jews, so I often call it flexi Jews. <laughs> but all of this folklore is pretty new to me. And I'm in my early 40s now. Like I've first started discovering this in my late 30s. I'm coming pretty late to all of this. It just was not taught to me. Me either. Right? So I imagine there are lots of people and potentially Jewish listeners who are like, wait, what? We have demons? We have ghosts? So can you just tell us briefly what each of these creatures is or is supposed to be? Sure. Yeah. So Shadim are Jewish demons, which it's an interesting connection with the word to what we think of as demons in other cultures, because Jewish demons are not really comparable to Christian demons. Mm. They're a lot more comparable to 
say jinn in Islam or even I like to compare them to fairy mythology mm-hmm. in a lot of European cultures. The mythology goes that they were created around twilight on the sixth day of creation and they weren't finished. But God was God was done. It was Shabbat. So that was it. Their bodies weren't finished. They had these subtle bodies and they have so many different ways that they can be. A lot of them are scary. A lot of them are what we might think of as evil, but not in a dualistic sense. The thing I love about Jewish demons is they're not anti-divinity. They're not set against divinity. They're a part of the spiritual order rather than antagonistic towards it. So if they're serving wicked purposes, that's what they're there for. They're dangerous predators like an animal is a dangerous predator. Mm -hmm. And some of them, especially in certain really amazing Talmud stories, some of them are actually very useful and collaborate with rabbis. And there's famous Shadim who are named, and then there's just kind of tons of folkloric Shadim all over the place. And we should say that Shadim, that word is plural. A single demon is called a shade. Yes. Yeah. So they are described as shapeshifters. They can change, but they are recognizable by these bird feet. I love it. Yeah, which I really enjoy. Oh, I enjoy it so much, too. And I learned from, again, Dory Midnight that there's all of this folklore around you know it was a shade who did some mischief if you see like little bird footprints left over. Yeah. yeah. You're supposed to scatter ashes around your room and see the tracks in the morning. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. I love it so much. Okay. Okay. We could talk all day about Shadeen, but let's shift to golems. I think golem, or I learned from you, the plural of that is glamim, right? Yeah. I didn't know that until I was doing the research for that zine. Because nobody ever says it. (laughs) Right? And it's a cool word. Glamim. Glamim, yeah. Right. But I imagine some listeners have heard of a golem. Not Gollum, like Lord of the Rings (laughs) we're talking about. Well, why don't you describe them, Ezra? So generally, people, when they're talking about golems, they refer to the golem, and by which they mean the golem of Prague, which comes from a story of Rabbi Judah Lowe of Prague creating this creature in order to protect Jews in the Jewish quarter. So a golem is created out of earth and it's given life by variously inscribing the Hebrew word for truth on the forehead or on some part of it, emet, Mm -hmm. and also sometimes by placing a scroll with divine names in the mouth or in some other part of the golem and it's animated through those means. It's supposed to be kind of like a magic automaton. It does what you tell it to do. And the Golem of Prague was created to protect Jews, but in most versions of that story, it kind of gets out of control later. So Golems are a really interesting case of, do they have free will? Are they monsters? Are they just machines? I find them really exciting to kind of look into the different stories. And there are other traditions around the idea that Adam was a Golem Mm. before having life breathed into him or... In the Talmud, there's a story that two sages would create a golem that was a calf every Shabbat and then eat it. Huh. So there's this idea that it doesn't necessarily have to be shaped like a person, but most of them are. And some people, I understand, think that Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster, rather, might have been inspired by 
this mythological creature, right? I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah. It gets to all the same questions of what does it mean to give life through means other than the regular procreative means? What does it mean to create another person? Yes. Yes. I love digging into all of that. Oh, so, so rich. And just a quick shout out. Some of you may have read the book. I think it's called The Golem and the Genie or The Golem and the mm. Gin. Do you know the book I'm talking about? Ezra? I know the book and it's been on my to read list for too long. I have to get to it. It is so good. It takes place in 19th century New York City, which, of course, like I'm such a sucker for because it's all around when my ancestors or some of them would have been living here. And in this telling, the golem is female, which mm. is interesting. And then there's a gin that she ends up having. I'll, I'll just call it a relationship in the most neutral sense of the word with. Mm. And it's, it's so, so good. So just a quick shout out for that. And also shout out, Ezra, to the golems that you create, which I am dying to get one someday. <laughs> oh, so next you. time you have a, a batch that you've uh, brought to life, I'm, I'm all over it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I make these little tiny. I think I've probably made somewhere in the area of 200 little tiny golems. Somebody's joking that I'm making a little army. I'm going to activate them all. <laughs> <laughs> When they've spread around the world. No, they're just little art figures. And they're gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a creature that I really love to think about and play with. Well, we know now, Ezra, how if these golems or glamim start taking over, how to <laughs> stop them, which is you're supposed to erase the first letter of the right. word for truth, and then it becomes the Hebrew word for death. So yeah, that's a hot that. tip for everyone listening, just in case a golem is running amok in your world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to the Dybbuk. And I think I've heard of this word before, but then I don't know if you watch the show Difficult People with Billy Eichner, which is like one of my favorite shows and, and Julie Klausner, one of my favorite shows ever. And there's like an ongoing joke about a Dybbuk. So, oh, no, I haven't seen it. It's so fucking funny. I love that show. Tell us what a Dybbuk is, my friend. Yeah, it makes its way into pop culture. There's actually a, a Rugrats episode where they mention a Dybbuk. What? Too. Yes, yes. A Dybbuk is a Jewish ghost, but it's not just a ghost. A Dybbuk is what happens when the ghost generally of a person who has some rectification to do, somebody who's got unfinished business or was a sinner, gets into the body of a living being, usually a person, not always a person though. But a dibbuk comes from the Hebrew root, which means to cling. And it shares a relationship with other words that have to do with, it's interesting, devakut, this idea of like being close, clinging to God. Dibbuk comes from the same root. So it's a ghost that's clinging to life. And there's a whole amazing tradition of Jewish exorcism mm. in terms of how to get the Dybbuk out. And it has so much in common with therapy, which I just absolutely love. There's an amazing book called Between Worlds, J.H. Hyas. And it's an incredible academic history of early modern Judaism and Dybbuk possession. I could talk about Dybbuk's for a very long time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the history of Dybbuk possession has really interesting things to say about women's spirituality and queerness, all kinds of really juicy good stuff. Yeah. When I was reading the mini zine that you made about the Dybbuk, you make this point that often it was women who were said to have been possessed by these male ghosts. 
And that often these women then, it was like the first time maybe that they could have a voice in society. And it reminded me a lot when I was writing my book, Waking the Witch, about the 19th century spiritualist movement here in America, where it was like Mm. being a medium was one of the few jobs that a woman could have where she could speak freely in public. And the loophole is like, well, it's not me. It's the ghost inside me, right? <laughs> exactly. I loved reading about in the highest book, there's a story of a woman in, I want to say, 16th century Mediterranean area, possibly Syria, who we don't have her name. So sad. We only know her as Bat Anav, the daughter of Rabbi Anav. But she supposedly went through a Dybbuk possession as a young woman and then mastered her spirits is the term that they use. And she became an oracle and she studied Torah and she was able to converse with all of the spiritual and religious leaders of the time. And that was just not something that she could have done had she not had this experience. So it was definitely a path to spiritual empowerment for certain people, which I thought was just so interesting. That is interesting. And Ezra, I hope this isn't an overstepping, but I was wondering if there are any readings of this about transness, about a person with one gendered body who then finds this true voice of another gender. And is that a reading that's appropriate, you think, to bring to this? Certainly as a trans person, that's a place that I go with Mm -hmm. it. I'm definitely interested in that idea. And in that period, when Dybbuk possession became kind of a cultural phenomenon, there was a lot of concurrent writing around the concept of Gilgul, which is Jewish reincarnation. And there was writing at that time talking about the idea of souls changing gendered bodies through reincarnation. And there's a lot of writing that trans Jews today reach for from that period to say, look, we were there then. Mm. People were talking about us then. There was a rabbi who was an exorcist who believed that his wife had a male spirit. Mm. He believed that that spirit was a previous righteous man, which is interesting. Dybbuk is not the only kind of ghost that can inhabit you. That's just the bad one. There's another kind of a spirit called an ibur, which comes from the word meaning pregnant. And that's when you invite a spirit, a positive, a righteous spirit into you for some kind of purpose. Mm. There was this whole movement of trying to bring the souls of tzadikim, righteous sages and rabbis and people who had passed who you wanted to come into you in order for you to experience some kind of revelation or be able to do mitzvot. Ah, that's so, so fascinating. Okay, we're going to have to have you come back so we can dive much deeper on (laughs) Dybbuk's because there's a lot more to say there. But can you give me the quickest, this is so unfair to our amazing angels, but just a quick summary of the Malachim because I want to make sure we have time to get to all of your other stuff. Yeah, so Malachim, that's the plural for angels. And there's so many words for angels and different kinds of angels. I see a lot of people referring to seraphim. The singular for that one is seraph. You have a singular seraph. And for malachim, is that malach or malachai? Okay. Malach. Yeah. And malach just means messenger. So it's the same in Greek. Greek is just angel, which comes from the Greek. That just means messenger too. So everything that we have about angels is just about how they show up to give us a message. But I particularly love Jewish angels as just kind of a terrifying, unknowable presence. (laughs) I think Jewish angels are much scarier than Jewish demons. Do tell. For me, they have a lot to do with trauma and transformation. I see angels as 
being outside our understanding of linear time and being outside our understanding of bodies. Demons feel like it's a lot easier to be on a level with them and think like, oh, yeah, I kind of get what your experience is and how you see the world. But yeah, angels are just a whole other level. So I really just appreciate (laughs) things like Ezekiel's description of the different kinds of angels around the holy chariot having all these wings and all these fire and multiple eyes. I love all the eyes. eyes. Terrifying and fabulous. And I think what you're kind of pointing to, Ezra, is like if Shadim feel like kind of terrestrial, I feel like Malachim feel sublime. And in the pure sense of the word sublime, like terrifying and awe-striking and celestial and all of that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I find that when I'm thinking about them in my artwork, I reach for Shadim when I'm talking about the body, which is interesting because they're supposed to have these subtle bodies. They don't have a corporeal form necessarily. But I think about Shadim when I think about bodies and when I think about sexuality, because Shadim have hungers. They're said to be like humans in that they sleep and they procreate and they eat. And they're like angels in that they can fly and they're beyond our understanding of kind of the material realm. But angels don't have hungers. Angels don't have appetite. Mm. Jewish discussion of what an angel is, as with everything, the whole two Jews, three opinions. (laughs) There's no set description of what an angel is, but I've read people likening them to natural processes. You know, the angel of gravity, the angel of atomic fusion. Whoa. An angel has a very specific purpose that it carries out. I kind of reach for angels when I reach for just the terrifying mystery of things that you have no control over. Mm, Gorgeous. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Good Sigil is a line of super stylish, powerful, talismanic jewelry. And I'm going to be honest, I really want some of it. As you know, historically, jewelry has been imbued with the powers of protection, luck, commitment, and more. And wearing jewelry is a form of magical intention. Good Sigil is tarot and astrology-inspired jewelry handcrafted with intention in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's made from silver, which is the metal of the moon, and is considered both a shield and a mirror. So each tarot pendant from Good Sigil is a tiny shield, reflecting and projecting your chosen tarot archetype. I've got my eye on their star tarot necklace since that's such a personal card for me, although I'm also tempted by their high priestess necklace, so I gotta think about it. But anyway, you can sign up for the Good Sigil newsletter at www.goodsigil.com for 10% off your first order, as well as access to exclusive discounts and offerings, including astrologically elected talismans. Find Good Sigil on Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and Facebook at goodsigil.com. And that's spelled G-O-O-D-S as in sorcery, I-G-I-L. I want to tell you about a new witchy queer-led podcast called Psyche Magic, where psychotherapist Jordan Hale interviews artists of all stripes about working with the subconscious via dreams, tarot, and the spirit realm. These freeform, playful conversations are about integrating the magic of symbol into both waking and dreaming life, 
deepening a sense of interconnection, creativity, and self-knowledge. Jordan's velvety voice and nurturing energy are perfect for relaxing and sending you off for a restful and sometimes eventful night's sleep. If you're like me, you're a practical witch who wants to put those seven or eight, or dare I say nine, hours of sleep to good use, and the Psyche Magic Podcast will help you learn to work mindfully with your dream material and cultivate sustainable practices around reveling in your inner world. So grab your nearest dream journal and check out this dreamy podcast. You can visit their website at PsycheMagicPodcast.com. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E MagicPodcast.com. Or by searching Psyche Magic wherever you get your podcasts. Would you like even more Witchwave? Do you wish you could hear from me and my other bewitching guests on a weekly basis? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witchwave Plus episodes, ad-free Witchwave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards for some tiers also include magical merch and contests where you can win witchly prizes each month, as well as early heads up about my workshops before they sell out. And all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly online rituals and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witch wave witches around the world. So head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the Witchwave. Today I'm speaking with Ezra Rose. Okay, I have been teasing this all episode, but it is time at last to talk about your most recent I'm going to call it a masterpiece, Ezra. This is your zine, Fuck Your Magic Anti-Semitism, a lesser key to the appropriation of Jewish magic and mysticism. So first question, what is this zine about? I mean, we touched on it a little bit, but in your own words. Yeah, this zine is, I would say, the culmination of a number of years spent reaching, digging into the history of the Western occult movement and the history of European anti-Semitism and how both of those things present in a modern context and just lots of conversations that I've been having with other Jews, with people in witchy and occultist and spiritual spaces. This is just kind of everything that I wanted to wrap up and present as a resource for people who are trying to navigate those conversations. I wrote it because there really wasn't anything I could find Mm. that was doing exactly that. There's a lot of history and there's a lot of discussion happening in very disparate places all over the internet and in various communities, but there wasn't a primer on all of these issues. And it was something that I felt like I needed. So I wanted to try to make it. And I Honestly, I've really just been blown away <laughs> by by the level of the response Huge to it. response. I really did not foresee that. Yeah. I mean, thousands of people have downloaded this and I think there's a hunger for it. And it's also just really good education, too. I learned so much and I thought I knew 
a lot of this already. And I learned so much from your research and from what you wrote. So first of all, just like a huge thank you to you. Oh, thank you. And it's really had already an influence on me because a lot of the imagery that people reach for when they are reaching for occult symbols are often these images that come from grimoires. Mm -hmm. And we're talking, what would you say, like medieval and Renaissance times? Right. And the most famous ones, though, there are many of them, are the Lesser Key of Solomon, which has all the demons and images of demons and sigils for allegedly conjuring demons. And then there's the Greater Key, which is more like planetary magic, as I'm recalling, and sigils for planetary magic. Right. And these images have been reused and reappropriated, and they are in horror movies all the time. And they're allegedly from Jewish mysticism. However, Ezra... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they in fact are not Jewish. There are multiple issues I'm trying to tackle in the zine. And the later appropriation of actual Jewish mysticism and magic is something that I talk about later. But before Christian occultists in late medieval and early Renaissance Europe, before they had access to what was really going on in Jewish mystical circles, they were just making it up. They were making it up based on the legends and the cultural stereotypes that they had around what they thought Jews were doing. And that has a really unfortunately, very violent and ugly history Mm. in terms of what was occurring for Jews in Europe during the period that these grimoires were being written. I can't recommend enough. The book that I think I cite most often in the zine is Joshua Trachtenberg's The Devil and the Jews. Yes, yes. And I think for me, such a big takeaway of this is that you have this population of people who are being oppressed, slaughtered, persecuted terribly, while at the same time, you have people who are like, but they're very magical and this is their secret magic. (laughs) It's like that exoticism that people often do. And I've been guilty of it in my life at times of, oh, these other people and what they do is so mysterious. And you can probably say this much more articulately than I can, but my takeaway from your zine is like, there's something deeply problematic about talking about a people and their exotic dark magic as if it's like a cool thing that you can learn from when A, this is probably not the magic those people were actually doing and B, you're saying these people are kind of like cool and magical while at the same time they are dying all around you, right? Right, and you're killing them in in many cases. Yes. That's the really big piece is it's the same people. There's this kind of fantasy of who wrote the grimoires, who wrote beyond the fantasy of that it was Jews that wrote the grimoires. There's this idea that it was these renegade occultists. But in fact, all evidence points to the fact that the renegade occultists were Christian clergy. They were people with power, people with access to education, access to language, people who were very much a part of the church institution, which was sanctioning and calling for the slaughter of Jews. So it's the same people that are benefiting while creating the conditions that people are dying under. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's kind of a tough pill to swallow because 
I am absolutely someone who like thinks all of that imagery is really cool. And like oh, me too. Right? I mean, <laughs> that's the thing that's so difficult. And you know, I talk about it in the zine that my journey through this was as someone who, especially in my teens and early 20s, I was obsessed with Western esotericism and with very much the visual language of all of this occultism. And I still am very inspired by it. Mm -hmm. It's something that I balance in my own work. And towards the end of the zine, I talk about that in terms of what can we take from this history and what's still contributing to anti-Semitism? Like, what do we need to leave behind? Yes, yes, exactly. And just to kind of close the loop on your zine as much as we can in this short amount of time, I just want to bring up what happened in the 19th century with all of these, like, European folks who were occultists or purported to be occultists and who eventually would evolve into groups like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and like this iconography of Jewish, not really Kabbalah, but like imagined Kabbalah and Jewish mm. spells and all of this stuff. Not that we don't have our own spells and magic and mysticism, but this like imagined version of it feels like it like filtered down century after century. So then when you have people like Pamela Coleman Smith, who I adore, oh, <laughs> who created, you know, the iconic imagery of the most popular tarot deck there is, the Rider Waite Smith deck. She's incorporating like Hebrew and literally the high priestess is like holding the Torah. Right. All of this stuff that's in the tarot cards. And as a Jewish person, I'm like, that's so fucking cool. The high priestess has all this like Jewish magic. And then you're like, oh, but it's also kind of problematic because she's getting this from other problematic sources. And it's just a, kind of a gnarly mess, right? Yeah, well, and, you know, I mean, Smith was working with Waite, who was a Christian Kabbalist. So the imagery that is in the tarot is Christian Kabbalah. Right. Which is distinct from Jewish Kabbalah in that it was created to convert Jews originally. And only later did it kind of take on a life of its own. But the origins of Christian Kabbalah are wholeheartedly anti-Semitic. You look at it and you say, oh, there's images I can connect to here. There's Hebrew, there's these ideas, but it's almost like someone who's speaking your language, but what they're actually saying is not what is welcoming to you. But that's not necessarily, and gosh, we could debate about this for days and days, but I personally wouldn't say, therefore, tarot cards are anti-Semitic tools or like Pamela Coleman oh, Smith either. was an anti-Semite. That is not what we're saying. Just, no. It's messy. Right. For me, I think the bare minimum is just knowing the actual history. That was my goal with the zine. I'm a great lover of tarot. I've been reading tarot with a Rider White Smith derivative deck since I was seven, eight years old, and I found it in the basement with mm -hmm. my mom's. I have this great 70s deck called the Hoi Polloi. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's just a recolor of the Pamela Coleman Smith art. But uh, I don't believe that tarot is inherently anti Semitic. I struggle when people don't want to talk about the history that connects it to anti Semitism in certain ways. It's the kind of thing where it's taking everything, being able to look at something with nuance and say, yes, this is something I love about it. And I see how it's descended in certain ways or in certain spheres from these things that we really need to reckon with. Yes, exactly. 
And I just know some of my listeners are now like, uh, wait, what does this mean? Uh, I don't want to do the wrong thing. What should I do? And I'll just say, like, we're not going to figure this all out, certainly, at the end of an hour-long podcast. So I would just recommend everybody download Ezra's zine. In the zine, Ezra, you're also not prescriptive about what we should do and what's right and what's wrong. You ask a lot of questions, and the zine can be downloaded. You're also doing hard copy versions that are available in your Etsy shop. And this is just the beginning of conversation around this. And Ezra, I deeply hope that you can come back on and have like a deeper discussion about this because I have so many more questions. Oh, I would love to. Thank you so, so much for having me again. Oh, of course, of course. In the very last moments that we have, Ezra, I just want to say that you have done a project that I think actually weaves all of your pieces together so beautifully, which is you have, I don't know if you'd call it a zine or an illustration, but it's a project you did called We Are Magic, Sigils mm. for Trans Power. And in that, you're using the iconography of sigils and you're reclaiming them. And I would love for you to just, in our final moments together, share your intention behind that project. Sure. Yeah, I love the history of sigil craft. And I love the idea that you can take an intention and distill it into an image, but also kind of put it behind a veil a little bit. You're encrypting this intention into this image that you then are able to maybe keep closer to you. And I have been playing with and making sigils for years and years. And the sigils that I make are kind of conceptually descended from Austin Osmond Spare, who was taking language and removing letters and creating the letters into forms that then a little bit mimic the kinds of sigils you might see in these old grimoires. That was something that I wanted to do. And the sigils in that particular zine are all from text that I crowdsourced from both friends and strangers online that were really just affirmations for trans people around gender, around surviving and existing and what our bodies, whatever bodies we have. So it's a collection, I would call it a zine, it's a collection of these phrases and these images that go with them. And that's another one where something that I did and enjoyed and could never have predicted how far it would get from me Mm. I have a folder of images of people who've sent me photos of tattoos that oh. they have of those sigils. Actually, there was one person who got the entire sigil set tattooed all down their spine. Oh my goodness. Completely blew me away. But people have had this really big response to, I think, just the content of it, which, you know, I can't take credit for the words. Those were given to me. But also just the idea that we can carry these images with us. It helps us remember the things that we want to remember. Glorious, glorious. Ezra, I know people are going to want to learn from you. They're going to want to see more of your artwork, read your zines. What is the best place for people to connect with you and see more of your work and perhaps even work with you? Well, I have a website, which is just Ezra-Rose.com. I also have all of my kind of various links collected on one of those card websites, C-A-R-R-D. So it's just Ezra Rose, no dash, dot card, C-A-R-R-D, dot C-O. And I am currently socially the most active on Twitter, which is not always great for me. <laughs> but it is where everybody is generally. And I, I still really value the conversations that I have with people there. So mm -hmm. yeah, I welcome folks to reach out to me. And what's your Twitter handle? It's Shade Garden. 
but shade is spelled S-H-E-Y-D, like the demon. Perfect. And then the last thing I'll shout out on your behalf that I found really helpful is you made another card called Jewish Magic. This is jewishmagic.card.co. And what will people find there? So that was just a little thing I created because over the years that I've been putting this kind of work out, I get asked again and again, where did you learn this? Where did you find this stuff? Where can I learn about it? And I have a list of recommendations that I've kind of refined over the years, everything from books to articles online to websites to people's blogs. And this just collects all of those. It's basically my collection of things you should go check out. So awesome. It's just like an incredible resource and bibliography. So if any of the topics that we spoke about today are resonating with you as a listener, go check out this card. So thanks for making that too, Ezra. Well, listen, I hope that this is the first of many conversations between us. I am so grateful for you, your magic, your exquisite artwork, and just your existence. So thank you so much for being here, Ezra. Thank you, Pam. This was such a wonderful conversation. I so appreciate it. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Ezra Rose for sharing their monstrously magnificent self with me. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and I by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now by Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witchwave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave. <laughs>